Hello, friend. Thanks, as always, for listening to The Tully Show. Sadly, our dear friend Mark McGrath is still at large entertaining stages the world over. But lest we fall too far behind in our all-important work recapping all of the significant and insignificant new music releases from 40 years and one month ago. I figured I could uh, I could do a month solo. Hopefully we'll have him back in the saddle next time around. Real quick, before we do that, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. If you like listening to me talking about music, I have over 100 Patreon-exclusive music podcasts. If you don't like listening to me talking about music, arguably kind of strange for you to be listening to this podcast at all, but there's also over 100 not music patreon exclusive podcasts over 200 hours of me talking incessantly find out what it feels like to be my wife at patreon.com slash mike tully okay you ready to start this show uh your host of the evening is a really funny dude um i forgot his last name but i've seen him before and he's really funny uh give it up for mike Coming to you live on tape from a newly refurbished podcast bunker in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today... I don't know why I said that. I always just say that at the beginning of the show. I don't know. My puppy might pop in. No three-time champion of rock and roll Jeopardy. No lead singer of Sugar Ray. No Mark McGrath, as I already touched on in the pre-roll of this show. Look, guys, it's just nuts. It's already almost May, and we still haven't done the new music releases from March of 40 years ago. So, um... I, I'm, I'm confident Mark McGrath will be back soon and often in the not-too-distant future. For, for now, the whole world was cooped up for a couple of years, and he was no exception. The difference between the likes of Mark McGrath and you and I, I'm not going to make the joke about he how he just wants to fly. It's cheap. It's easy. I wouldn't make that joke. I'm just going to point out that the man belongs on stage in front of people, entertaining the masses, and I'm very, very happy that he's extremely, extremely busy doing that. We've actually had a couple dates here or there that we were going to do, and it fell through. Other gigs came up. Hopefully you've seen Sugar Ray out there on the road, and hopefully he will be back here soon. I'm confident he will be, but in the meantime, the real star of this show is not me or Mark McGrath. I'm confident it is all of the new music that came out 40 years and one month Okay. Is that just the thing now that we're a tiny little bit more permanently? I'd like to think that we will get caught up time-wise at some point and be in synchronicity with the early 80s and beyond. But for now, it's me and it's a bunch of high-quality, significant music releases, stuff that continues to resonate throughout the ages. One that ties into last week's Tully show with Mitchell Cohen, the author of that book about Arista Records. One that continues to be the number one song in America, at least in my car, on the drives to school. But before we even, before we talk about any of those, I like to take a look back and see what the music-oriented news of the day was, if there is any. And sadly, that often seems to be it was the golden age of rock stars. It was the tail end of the golden age of rock stars. And sadly, what that means is it was kind of the golden age of rock stars dying prematurely. John Belushi, not exactly a rock star. 
but he was, if you think about it, because of the Blues Brothers thing and because music was a big part of his skill set. And in this month, well, in March of 1982 is when somebody injected a speedball, a combination of heroin and cocaine into him at the Chateau Marmont in uh, on the nearby Sunset Strip up there in Hollywood. And he met his untimely demise at the age of 33. And when we talk about John Belushi, I think because the comedy was such a, a, a powerful force at the time and because Saturday Night Live, that original cast left such a powerful imprint on the culture. Lorne Michaels is like, can we stop? Every time he does an interview, he's like, seriously, have we not talked about the late 70s enough? It's it's up there with any golden era of comedy that has been, um, you know, immortalized and lionized in our culture, that early SNL cast. It's it's easy to forget what a big part of John Belushi's, um, what he brought to the world, what a big part of that was music. And maybe you remember, you know, of course you remember the Blues Brothers. When I think of John Belushi and music, what I think of before that is, have you seen his impression of Joe Cocker? Um, I'll, I'll play you a little bit of it and then we'll talk about it. I will try not to sing out a kid. Oh, baby, I get And then he does the second verse and he flips out and you know, flips over sideways and, and hits his face and continues singing. Like, I'm not trying to disparage Chris Farley, but when Chris Farley came along and, and it was so tempting to say, you know, we, we have these early SNL prototypes and then you want people to fit into them and be the next, you know, Chris Rock was supposed to be the next Eddie Murphy who was on that show. Chris Farley was supposed to be the next John Belushi in certain ways he was. I think Chris Farley um, was more talented sometimes than he gets credit for. I've always said, I don't think you can really be genuinely funny without being smart even if it is throwing yourself into a table there's a, there's choices that are made about how you throw yourself into a table there's a funny and a, a, a more funny and less funny way to do that and he always always obviously made the exact right call but chris farley could have done the second half of imitating joe cocker where you just scream and flail around the stage chris farley couldn't have done the first part which is pretty much just as good of a Joe Cocker as Joe Cocker could do. And that was uh, one of the reasons why John Belushi was and remains such a legend. Another speaking of legends, death from the rock world from March of 1982. This is when, um, this is sadly also to be even more specific about the end of the age of rock stars. It's the era of rock stars taking ill-advised trips in private jets. Well, I guess that goes all the way back to Buddy Holly and, uh, I wanted to say Lou Diamond Phillips and Richie Valens, but uh, Randy Rhodes, who, unlike a lot of the other rock stars who died too young, I don't think was a crazy out of control guy. I'm not aware of him having had crazy substance abuse issues. This is the month that he passed. And I don't, off the top of my head, I don't have, I don't listen to a lot of like live music or live recordings or live albums. Off the top of my head, my favorite live album all time is the Ozzy Osbourne album, Randy Rhodes Tribute, which was, you know, they'd banked a recording of a couple of their shows with, I guess, toward, an eye towards a potential live release. And when he passed, they put that out because that was the last recording they had of him, basically. And 
it's it's so funny that Ozzy always had that reputation for being the most satanic out of control guy and yet some of the most tasteful shit that ever came out of the classic metal scene was from him the song goodbye to romance that he made with randy rhodes is one of the most it's not beautiful for a metal song it's a beautiful song that happens to be metal and uh and i don't know whose call it was it may have been sharon's but at the end of the live album randy rhodes tribute they have an outtake from so randy rhodes had put this classical acoustic piece acoustic piece of guitar on um i don't remember which album it was on i guess it was blizzard of oz called d d was his mom's name and it's one of these things growing up as a guitar player everybody either knew how to play d or wanted to learn how to play d that was the, that was the metal thing to learn how to play on an acoustic guitar and it's a really accomplished really beautiful little piece of music but what they stuck on the end of the live album was d but the extended session of Randy Rhodes in studio actually flubbing stuff and laughing at himself. And it was, it's such a poignant, such a touching, such a, a human way to wrap up his recorded legacy. And here, I'll play a little bit of that. There's a jet. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, he says, there's a jet, like a plane flew overhead and messed up his take, so he had to start it all over again. So, uh, R.I.P. John Belushi <clears throat> and Randy Rhodes. Moving on to the significant new music releases of that month. Uh, Asia. I think this may have been when Asia made their debut. I don't know why I'm saying it like that, but I'm going to keep it up. So, Asia how was made. It was a. It was. Everything that the rock, it was everything that almost everybody hated. Progressive rock was always, you know, always had a huge fan base, but at the same time, a lot of people, it was very easy to shit on, you know, the stuff that uh, Spinal Tap and Stonehenge was largely inspired by the progressive rock scene. So Asia's a bunch of guys from groups like, I don't, I don't even know, yes, a bunch of prog rock wankers who were successful and were making money and maybe had very small castles, but they were looking at their buddies that they'd come up with playing clubs who now had very large castles. And these guys are like, what the fuck, man? I want a great big castle too. And so they realized the only way to do that was to make, they called it AOR, album-oriented rock, but it's kind of a funny term because a, a album-oriented rock is a radio format. And it was just this idea of making stuff for rock radio. Give me a rock single that doesn't just appeal to uh, guys who want to get stoned and roll joints on your album cover who you know give me something the kids can dance to that we can play at the roller rink so asia was prog rock already a bit of a dirty word super group those obviously have a very mixed bag in throughout the history of rock and now they're doing the slick 80s soulless corporate sellout thing but the crazy thing is i don't think this moved me one way or another when i was a kid i've actually gotten really into this song right here there's like five or ten songs from the 80s that i knew but i didn't really know until recently that are now in regular rotation for me and despite the fact that i don't like corporate sellouts any more than the next guy and i hate prog rock i fucking love this song
Come on, who's coming with me? That is clean. Asia and only time will tell. I'm playing iTunes samples here, and I'm that's off the Asia album. But I see that also that song was included on um, a compilation album, Power Cardio 80s Hits. And I think that about sums it up. That's all rock and roll that suits all of your cardio needs, courtesy of prog rock, super group turned 80s slicksters, Asia. Uh, moving on. Laura Branigan was, you know, Mark and I were always talking about this, this transition period that's going on where you can, you can, there's a lot of bands and we'll talk about some later on in the show who are just sort of finding their bearings and, and um, feeling their way in the dark towards what will be signature typical eighties sounds, but there's still plenty of people who are, uh, you know, the, the, the world doesn't know, the public doesn't know that 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 seventies thing is about to go completely out the window. You can still have hits with that. And Laura Branigan was a singer who had a really, really, really big hit with a song. That's, um, it's, it's very, very of its time. This has got 1982 written all over it. Don't pretend you do not like Gloria by Laura Branigan. Upon re-listening, maybe you don't have to love Gloria by Laura Branigan, but I do. Moving on outside of the of what was happening in the mainstream stuff your mom and dad would have been aware of to the grungy underbelly of the rock world, specifically the punk world, to pretty significant releases in March of 82, close to where I am right now, uh, about a about 30 minutes south of where I live in LA. Circle Jerks put out their second album. Fun fact, the cover of this album depicts a bunch of uh, punks in the street in, I think, San Francisco, including the Circle Jerks and a young Mike Ness of Social Distortion. It's so crazy to me when I look at, it's not, not just punk, although it definitely applies to punk new wave, just music in the 60s and 70s, how... Um, how small the circles of bands used to be and how intermingled and incestuous and so-and-so tried being in a band with so-and-so and then they did this other thing that hit and and every single time I read another like most recently I read Phil Collins's autobiography he's rubbing shoulders with all these people every time I read one of these books it further reinforces this idea that any like any of us could have been the least talented guy in some band that everybody's heard of because it just it seemed like if you hung out at the right club and you could hold your alcohol and you had a decent haircut you too could have been the bass player in fog hat like is it crazy that mike ness was on just happened to be on the cover photo of the second circle jerks album is it crazy that Susie sue of Susie and the banshees just happened to be hanging out with the sex pistols when they did that infamous daytime tv interview in the uk no it seemed like there were like 15 people in each of those scenes Anyway, I, as I think I've made clear, not a massive fan of the second wave of punk, but to me, this is one of the highlights of that second wave. The title track from Circle Jerks, Wild in the Streets. Wild, 
And as significant and rightly revered as Circle Jerks are in the punk pantheon in the same month, March of 82, um, I would say a way more significant release. Walk Among Us was, for reasons that I've read several times and still are not totally clear to me, was the third album recorded by Misfits, but the first released. I had a really good chat one time. I've referred to this a million times. It was such a fascinating thought uh, to me. Um, I had a chat with the lead singer. I forget his name of the band Tiger Army. And he, who they were like a warp Tour band in the, in the 2000s, if you're not familiar. He pointed out that Misfits should have gotten a release at the same time or perhaps even sooner than the other big punk rock, you know, the, the, the Holy Trinities, your, your Ramones, your Sex Pistols, your Clash. And it just didn't happen. In the case of the Misfits, I think they literally just couldn't find anybody who would distribute their first album, Static Age, which is crazy because it's such a classic and it is such a good album. But it's also, it was way ahead of its time and the recording is an absolute piece of shit. So kind of not shocking that nobody wanted to release it at the time. Hindsight, of course, is is 2020. But the guy from Tiger Army, they're like sort of like a goth-leaning punk band. He said his whole concept for his band was that the 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 story of punk rock would have likely been very different if the Misfits had come out when their first album was actually finished and punk had therefore always been way more goth infused it seemed like if you were just a kid buying records at the time or reading fanzines that the misfits were kind of late to the party what do you know you don't know how do you know that a band already shelved two albums or had two albums shelved so although misfits are showing up five years after six years after punk rock has its initial explosion they are you know, they, they, they are also one of the true legitimate godfathers of the scene. The first album anybody would have got their hands on, though, was outside of scattered singles, etc., was Walk Among Us, which featured this song right here. Such a dark band and such a frankly dark man and yet such an oddly joyous experience listening to those classic cruddy old misfits releases moving from the punk world over to the adjacent world of heavy metal uh scorpions are starting to find their scorpions 80s groove one of these days me and mark will do an episode of um songs so nice they wrote it twice bands who have ripped off their own songs it's actually news to me that so i think scorpions are definitely guilty of that here i'll play you the song and then we can talk about it a little bit you're gonna know where i'm going with this. You know that thing that some hilarious asshole made where they took two Nickelback songs and put them side by side, left and right stereo channels, and, and showed that they're literally two songs that play, that 
are so identical that they can play alongside one another without stepping on each other. I believe you could do the same thing with No One Like You by Scorpions. And uh, of course, their signature hit, Rock You Like a Hurricane. What I did not realize, I thought No One Like You was the rewrite. I guess um, it was more of the prototype for what would later become the big hit song elsewhere in the metal world. When I had Mitchell Cohen from Arista Records on the show last week, I brought up something that, frankly, I thought he would be a little bit more entertained by. He didn't seem to think it was very funny at the time. So he worked at Arista, and he signed bands. We'll talk about one of them in a little bit. But in the beginning, he was writing, he was doing PR stuff. He was writing the shit that went in magazine ads and uh, promotional posters in record stores. And um, the the publicist who worked on that book was kind enough to share one of those blurbs with like vintage 80s artwork for um, a bunch of stuff, including Crocus. Are you familiar with Crocus? I think they are. Well, I wanted to say Sweden's contribution to the metal world. I guess Sweden has made a pretty significant contribution. Um, I, I, is, is Ghost from Sweden? I don't know. I'm pretty sure there's a band from Sweden who's better at heavy metal than Crocus, but Crocus is a heavy metal band and they are from Sweden. And that was sort of the angle that somebody at Arista, probably Mitchell, seized on when they wrote this tantalizing uh, copy about a Crocus album. It might be the one that I'm, we're about to sample. Sharp as a guillotine edge, Crocus's music is bent on unleashing savage impulses. Headhunter finds this band hitting the kind of ferocious peaks that have led them to be tapped the next kings of the hard rock jungle. Crocus may be from Switzerland, but listener neutrality is out of the question. Yeah, they're not Swedish. They're Swiss. Crocus might actually be the Swiss, the, the best Swiss metal band of all time. Not saying much. You gotta bear in mind. So it's 1982. Bon Scott has been dead for three years and without shame. In their defense, Crocus would not be the last, and for all I know, we're not the first band to shamelessly ape. Uh, adding uh, the original classic Bon Scott ACDC 1970s recipe, adding absolutely zero to the mix. Um, and it worked out pretty well for some of them. I don't know how well it worked out for Crocus. Um, long stick goes boom. See what they did there? Metal bands may have been very, very dumb, but they had an easy mastery of the sexual double entendre. Lastly from the metal world, but far from leastly, Iron Maiden did an album or two with a lead singer. I know there's kind of a cult following for those early records. I think his name was Paul something or other, but they became Iron Maiden as we all know and love them with the release in March of 1982 of their album, Number of the Beast.
Those little uh, Steve Harris bass wrinkles are always one of the fun little treats of Iron Maiden. That is one of the real pinnacles of the genre right there. Bruce Dickinson's primal scream at the beginning of the title track of Number of the Beast, which spawned those day glow posters that my cousin had in his bedroom that used to scare the absolute fuck out of me when I slept over my aunt and uncle's house in the early 80s. Moving from the metal world over to, <clears throat> what would we have called it then? Indie, I guess. Well, not alternative is really what it was, but I don't think we called it. I don't, what did they call this stuff? College rock? I don't know. We're going to start with The Jam. The Jam are really all of the above and none of them because they were not um, independent. They were on a major label and they weren't uh, alternative in their home country. They were one of these bands that was really, really big in England. And as far as I know, anyway, I, I, I feel like I have a pretty good idea of what popped in America. Um, I'm sure the K-Rocks, the K-Rocuses of the world were all over Paul Weller and The Jam. But this is a band that was barely even a name to me and definitely not a band I had listened to until Oasis in the 90s started relentlessly name dropping them and Paul Weller the main dude from the jam became like an unofficial extra member keyboard um, everything guy for Oasis the touring band and was even on some of their recordings that's when I finally got greatest hits and got wise to the jam i wonder if more people are finding out about bands like the jam who really could have been more successful in america like i if you like elvis costello and he did very well in america there's no reason why you shouldn't like the jam to pick one random example i'm not sure why it didn't come together for them but i wonder if maybe in some medium-sized way it's starting to i don't know if you have this experience where you're like <clears throat> listening to a bunch of stuff on say spotify and so it starts suggesting more stuff to you i would think that if you listen to a lot of bands that were, you know, uh, Squeeze, Elvis Costello, a lot of bands from the UK who did cross over in the US in the early 80s, slightly more intelligent, slightly more literate, yet very, very tuneful guitar rock, power pop. Um, it's not going to be long before the algorithm is like, dude, you got to know about this band too. And maybe one of the reasons they weren't bigger is I think they were were still good when they broke up. Like they didn't beat the dead horse. They were still firing on all cylinders, at least to my ears when they released their sixth and final studio album in on the 12th of March, 1982 entitled the gift bearing this classic song. As joyful a piece of music as has ever been recorded, it's um, it's amazing how strongly um, Motown. I don't know if it's more than Motown. Northern Soul is the catch-all term that we that we use for this. It's it's just so cool how music kind of ping pongs, um, maybe more like pinballs around the world. And there's a thing that's very specific to a time and a place and a location, but it catches on in a place that culturally has nothing to do with that. And so they do their own little weird version of that. And, uh, you know, like reggae happens in Jamaica and then it goes to England and it becomes ska or 
Well, and then I was going to say, then Motown goes to England. I guess it's crazy when music goes to England and then English people make their version of it. I guess that's my point here. Um, but uh, there's a lot of really, really great blue-eyed soul, uh, northern soul um, people from the UK for some weird reason. They don't come across as the most soulful people, but they've certainly got away with Motown-infused music. Next up, as I said, um, uh, a song that continues to resonate on my car drives every morning and afternoon to and from school with my children came out. And it, I, I just, I, I'm, I obviously, it is very obvious, goes without saying, I am banging the drum very loudly, carrying the torch um, uh, very much so for music from the 1980s. I don't mean to shit on contemporary stuff i'll just ask i'm just gonna i'm just gonna ask this question i'll just put this out there and i'll leave it there in 19 i was five years old in 1982 did i listen to music that was 40 years old on my way to school bad question i kind of did my mom made me listen to oldies although that shit even was just 50s and 60s it wasn't as old that seemed so ancient. It was only, quote unquote, only 20 years old at that point. Was I listening to Bing Crosby records? Was I asking my mom, can you please put on the Bing Crosby station records that would have been 40 years old when I was five years, five years old? Hell no. How will, will very many children 40 years from now be asking their parents to put on whatever the hell is big right now? Lizzo. Maybe it could happen. As as a wise band called Asia once asked only you know, one said, only time will tell. But what I know is right here, right now, uh, in 2022, my kids are pretty well exposed to contemporary shit. And this is what they want to hear every fucking morning. You know, we're all guilty of, uh, uh, I feel like Mark says this a decent bit of, of saying, you know, you could release that today and that would be a hit all over again. And sometimes it's true, but most often it's, it's, it's probably not the case. That is such, like in certain ways, of course, it's very, very 80s, the drum machines, the synths, but like, it's just such an odd, weird, fluky little thing that I feel like that could have come out like 10 years earlier, 20 years later, and it still would have at least found at least like an underground audience. It's such an oddly compelling, oddly fun little piece of music. And of course, it was aided greatly by... The music video, the 80s, were the golden age of little people being cast in little people roles in movies and music videos. And the video for Men Without Hats and Safety Dance was no exception. It's time now to get deep 80s. Do you remember this one?
Yep, just in case any of you also had ladies speaking indecipherable French on this song as well on your bingo card, checking all the early 80s goth electronic pop boxes, Visage and Fade to Grey. Uh, it's been a while since I prepped this episode because I kind of thought we were going to do it in March. Um, but unless I am mistaken, this next song also, if you're looking to add stuff to your Buffalo Bill Silence of the Lambs playlist, Visage and Fade to Grey right there, and perhaps also Christian Death right here. Okay, that's like big time for sure, not for everybody, but I, I know that somebody out there was like, oh, Christian death, okay. I I, I know you were joking about the Buffalo Bill playlist, but as a matter of fact, I have a pretty robust one, and now Christian death are on it. The church out of Australia would someday make their own contributions to the uh, whatever you want to call the, the, the too cool for school goth indie rock canon with i mean maybe maybe you know you could say bella lugosi's dead by bauhaus is the prototypical um goth song or maybe it's something else i'm not even thinking of that i don't even know about i've never been much of a of a goth listener but i think the song that was very very goth while at the same time reaching a uh, a very wide audience is under the Milky Way by the church. Everybody familiar with that one? But they were not quite, they had not quite found their way to that thick of eyeliner or black lipstick where we find them here in March of 1982. Um, they didn't have much of a distinct signature sound, but they were they were good. And I wanted to play them because this is one of the bands, Mitchell Cohen from Arista that was on the show last week. He was saying that he started writing shit like neutrality is out of the question when it comes to Crocus. And he graduated up to being able to bring some bands into the fold. And one of those bands that was released in the States, at least by Arista, um, was the church because uh, Mitchell brought them in. And that was a, that's, I mean, he downplayed his contributions to the label, but under the Milky Way, you, everybody knows that, right? It's a really big song. Well, I think this is what we're going to listen to right here. The first album, it's not their first album, but it was the first one that was distributed by Arista in the States. Uh, and it featured from the church, this song right here. Isn't that nice? Kind of uh, almost psychedelic furzy where we find, well, turn off, where we find the church here in March of 1982. It's amazing to me um, how much, I, I don't know if this is too inside music-y for, for some of you, there's 12-string guitars, right? Which instead of, it, it, you know, guitars usually have six and 
12 strings have six sets of two. So everything has this kind of like thick, almost like harpy sound to it. Every string you hit, you're hitting two strings. Um, and what's a 12 string guitar? It's, uh, it's, it's the birds. It's that very 60s uh, kind of guitar sound. And I don't think, you know, there's certain bands that like Velvet Underground or the Stooges where they're from the late 60s or early 70s, but the thread from them to indie rock is so incredibly clear. They had the same spirit. They were just so far ahead of the time that the, the music didn't sound the same. The Birds, to me, are not an obvious inspiration for what would later be the cool kids of rock and roll. And yet over and over again, Tom Petty is for sure the most obvious example of this but 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 the church right there with that really jangly thing i mean peter buck rem that guy lives in birds land um i don't think we we think of the birds as uh an indie rock band or as one of the godfathers of indie rock and yet i can't believe as i go deeper and deeper into all this early 80s stuff much of which is you know fallen by the historical wayside i can't believe how much stuff reminds me of the flipping birds okay two more and you would never in unless you already know these never in a million years be able to guess who either of these artists are let's start with this right here And that's the most popular song on that release. Some people call it an album. Some people call it an EP, at least according to uh, to iTunes. Would you believe that is the debut recording and release from Sonic Youth? It has like, maybe you would. Maybe it I guess it kind of depends on how much time you spent listening to Sonic Youth because it has like all of the... Um, the it's the, not the attitude like if sonic youth had a mission statement that's utterly consistent with their mission statement which is like do it with a straight face too cool for school noisy dissonant disaffected uh kind of difficult to connect with you got to come to this music it's not gonna come to you it's not a puppy dog that's that's trying to give you love we're cool over here standing at our feet if you want to pay attention cool if not dude we're fucking cool i'm just gonna stare inside my cardigan sweater over here and my scuffed up doc martens or whatever shoes sonic youth may have been wearing in the early 80s but it doesn't actually sound anything like what we would come to know sonic youth for above all else well first of all I don't, at least that sample doesn't have any vocals on it, but um, none of the trademark um, alternate tuned, detuned, purposely warped, mushy guitars that would be, I mean, that's what Sonic Youth above all else was for decades, um, nowhere to be found on the band's debut. Um, and yet, maybe... Maybe you did guess 
that Sonic, it was Sonic Youth or somebody who's sort of Sonic Youth-esque. Um, no way you have any shot at this, our final new music release from March of 1982. <laughs> CC, je suis un rock star. Yes, yes, I am a rock star. As recorded by a guy who was a rock star, as far as I can tell by virtue. You know what I was saying at the beginning of the show about if you just happen to be in the right pub on the right day in 1966, you could be dragged along to minor rock legendum. Uh, <laughs> uh, standing just to the side of truly talented people. I've never met Bill Wyman. I've never jammed with Bill Wyman of the Rolling Stones. Maybe the guy is a fucking savant natural, but I don't think so. I think he was the guy who played what Keith and whoever the other guitar player was in the Stones at the time uh, was were playing an octave lower. And yet it did not stop him from saying, hey, if the Stones aren't making a record, I should just give them the full Bill treatment. I believe, I don't think this is the only solo album he he made. It's been a while, but I did an episode with, I think it was with Mark, a while back about re regrettable solo side projects. And I think not only did we feature Bill Wyman of the Stones at the time, it wasn't even that song or that album. It was another equally, if not more, regrettable solo foray. The Stones, if you think about it, I've never really thought about this before. Has there ever been a greater example of the sum being greater than the whole being greater than the sum of its parts? That's that saying, right? I'm good. I'm good. I'm still here. Because if Mick Jagger's solo career is uh, notoriously disappointing. Ask anybody who worked at the record labels where he, he's been signed over the years, where the Stones have been signed over the years, occasionally releasing and giving a great big expensive release to a Mick Jagger solo album that was not going to do anything commercially was just like part of the business of being in the Rolling Stones business. It's like if you have John Lennon on the label, you're putting out Yoko's records too and smile like you mean it. Keith Richards, I know, has had an okay solo run, just sort of doing this, the, the Keith Richards thing, you know, kind of like a, a, a laid back, not trying too hard. If you like the Stones, you'll probably like this too, but I don't recall Keith having hits. I don't recall Keith even trying for hits, but on top of that, you got Mick Jagger. Have, can you name a Mick Jagger solo song? Exactly. And Bill Wyman doing CC Je Suis un rock star a song bragging not only bragging about being a rock star but doing so in french putting um it sounded to me not only being lecherous at some resort somewhere and throwing around his rolling stones dick but later writing a song immortalizing that uh that tropical rendezvous as well uh off the album CC Je suis un rock star doubling down was Bill Wyman. Well, folks, 
That is all of the music that I really wanted to talk to you about from March of 1982. Next time, I'm sure we all hope Mark McGrath will be here. And I've already, there's, it, it, the hits just keep coming. Friends, there's so much interesting stuff, stuff that um, it's fun to hear through fresh ears in the context of the other stuff that was coming out at the time and and so much, I mean, not Bill Wyman's a pretty bad example, but so much good stuff that's all just sort of been forgotten about. I'm enjoying taking this leisurely stroll back through the history of 80s music and uh, I'm glad to have you here with me for the journey. Um, I will, I'll leave it at that and I'll remind you once again, plenty more, oh my goodness, almost too many podcasts living exclusively at my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Of course, I don't need to remind you, you can also hear me on the Jason Ellis Show and on The Deuce with Jesse May Peluso. Thank you so much for spending some time. I look forward to seeing you here again very, very soon. <laughs>